Thank you for that. That was uh, a good introduction to the message just simply because it was good singing. Um, I wonder if we all stand to honor the Word of God as it's read this morning. We're looking at Psalm 96. Psalm 96. Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. Sing unto the Lord, bless his name. Show forth his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the heathen, his wonders among all people. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Give unto the Lord, O ye kindreds of the people. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before him all the earth. Say among the heathen, that the Lord reigneth. The world also shall be established, that it may, shall not be moved. He shall judge the people righteously. Let the heavens rejoice, and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar, and the fullness thereof. Let the field be joyful, and all there is that is therein. Then shall all the trees of the wood rejoice before the Lord. For he cometh, for he cometh to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the people with truth. Let's pray. Father, uh, everything that you've put in your word is for our benefits, and you don't take up space with things that are important. And the message of this psalm is one that's very important. Help us to see it and understand it and put it to use in our lives. I ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. I'd like for you to indulge me in a little bit of nostalgia this morning. I had the privilege of singing in Mrs. Cedarholm's very first magical choir at Maranatha, and that's almost 55 years ago. And along with me, uh, some of you know Pastor Wayne Vauder, uh, Mrs. Ruffin's big brother, Mr. Z's in-laws. They were all in that choir with me. And aside from the school song, the piece that we did that sticks the most in my mind is a setting of Psalm 96. What makes this psalm so compelling that it would still be in my head 55 years later? Now, I'm going to go through some technical stuff first, so bear with me on the technical matters. They will help us appreciate the interpretation and application as we go on. It's one of those things, eat your vegetables, they're good for you. So before we look at the psalm, let's... Remember that 
psalms aren't just put haphazardly in the book, they come in groups. And this particular group starts in Psalm 93, and it goes at least to Psalm 99. The expression, the Lord reigneth, appears in 93.1, 97.1, and 99.1. And also in verse 10 of our psalm, the only other place where this exact expression occurs in the Old Testament is in 1 Chronicles 16.31, which happens to be the quotation, a quotation of this psalm. The word translated reigneth is the verbal form of the Hebrew word for king. So God kings, the Lord kings. God is called the king in 95.3, in 98.6, and in 94.2, he is the judge of all the earth. Now, this theme is not the only one that binds these psalms together, but it's an important one. Do we see a theme here? It's God's sovereignty. The psalm celebrates the supremacy of Yahweh over all peoples and all creation. The psalmist invites us not just to know this fact, but to revel in it. So David used this psalm as part of the worship when he brought the ark of God to Jerusalem. That's recorded in 1 Chronicles 16, 23 through 33, is almost a word-for-word quotation of the psalm. Only a few of the psalms are recorded more than once in the Bible, and this is one of them. If we can trust the title that's given to it in the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was translated before the time of Christ, then the psalm was written by David, and it was used at the dedication of the second temple after the exile. This psalm closely relates to the first half of Psalm 93, So if I repeat something that Dr. Brock said last time, then I don't apologize for it because if God said it more than once, then we need to hear it more than once. Um, The nice thing about this psalm is Psalm 95 has a positive and a negative part. This one is all positive. What are we to make of the psalm? What makes it so compelling? We can start by considering in general God's use that he intends for all the psalms. I have always considered the psalms to be the place, the go-to place when I need to deal with my emotions. And that is certainly true as far as it goes, and it's a big reason why Psalms is probably the most beloved book by Christians in all the Bible. But the Psalms are also a source of powerful theology, which is true of this Psalm. If you don't believe me, get yourself a reference Bible and go to, say, the two most theological books in the New Testament, which would be Romans and Hebrews, and see how many times they quote from the Psalms. Now, sometimes the New Testament writers quote from the Psalms as a 
rhetorical device, maybe to set the mood of what they're talking about. Sometimes they quote the Old Testament for illustrative purposes. But when Paul and the writer of Hebrews quote the Psalms, they're using it to establish their theology. The Psalms is a very theological book. So let's take an overview of the Psalm, and then we'll look at the parts, and then we'll come back to an overall view to see how God wants us to apply it. The psalm consists of commands to praise and reasons to praise. This pattern repeats three times with different orientations. The first section urges praise in the God, to the God of creation. That's verses 1 through 6. The second section exhorts praise to the righteous judge, verses 7 through 10. And the third section anticipate Yahweh's coming to bring justice to the world, verses 11 through 13. And so the psalmist here covers past, present, and future. So let's look at the first section. The exhortation to praise, verses 1 and 3, is that we are to sing. This is active worship, not passive observation. This is a command. And then what are we to sing? We're to sing the new song. What is the new song? I believe the new song can be defined as the response of the believer's heart to a new manifestation or a fresh experience of the goodness and greatness of God. Some have suggested that the significance of to the, Lord, the expression to the Lord has the idea of singing about the Lord as much as to the Lord. And that may well be true. And who is to sing here? Well, it says the whole earth. The extent of God's domain is the extent of his praise. Now, where do you live? If you live on the earth, then you're part of this, and the command is for you. So it includes all of us. God blesses us by giving us benefits. We bless God by praising him for all his benefits. Psalm 103, 1 and 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, praise his holy name. Now, when I bless the Lord, I can't add anything to him. He's already perfect. He already has everything he needs. But I can tell people about his benefits, and I bless God by telling about his benefits. And that's what the new psalm, song is about. It's about God's benefits. The scope of the song extends to all nations, not just to Israel. Anyone who sees God's wondrous works should praise him. Now, why should we praise? Well, we should, we look at the, in verses four through six, we look at the contrast between Yahweh and the gods of the nations. 
He alone deserves praise. The gods of the nations are nothing. And we have here a play on words. The word for God is Elohim. And that contrasts with El Elin. El Elin is the word that's translated idols. The basic meaning of the word is ineffective or futile. What the psalmist is saying, the nations got nothing. Okay? Their gods will do nothing for them. Their gods are powerless. Their gods are nothing. Yahweh is the creator of the heavens. We are only now beginning to discover what that means. And I don't know how excited you are about having your tax dollars spent on science projects where they blast off telescopes into the heavens, but the Hubble Space Telescope and the James Webb Space Telescope are looking far away into the most distant parts of the universe. And the wonders they're showing of just the beauty and of the stupendous power of God is just hard for us to understand or contemplate. The expression honor and majesty refers to royal splendor. Oriental kings designed their palaces and even the way they dressed to impress people. Have you ever noticed kings are always up on a platform? And the idea is everyone that's around them has to look up to them in reverence. They impressed everyone who saw them. True beauty surrounds the Lord. Remember, Isaiah saw him high and lifted up. And we should humbly submit and bow down to our great God. That's the first cycle. Let's look at the second cycle. The exhortation to praise is verses 7 through 9. The people who formerly worshipped idols, that is, the kindreds of the people, should worship Yahweh. And the psalm is looking forward to the day when that will be true. They will no longer worship idols, but they'll worship the one true God. Those who formerly sacrificed to idols should sacrifice to Yahweh. Now, first century Judaism the time of Christ and the apostles was very exclusive. This psalm is not the least bit exclusive. It's inviting the nations, the heathen, to come and worship at God's temple. Worship in verse 9, the word translated worship means to bow down. All people should bow down and tremble at the presence of the Lord. Um, I'm taking an online class now on prayer, and one of the things that our teacher has emphasized is that when we pray, we need to have a physical attitude of reverence before the Lord. There is not a thing wrong. In fact, there's everything right with bowing when we pray, kneeling. Uh, A.W. Tozer, the famous Christian author, spent 
a long time every day in his study, flat on his face on the floor, talking to God. So, why should we praise the Lord? Verse 10. Because God is in control. He is in control of all things at all times. And the effects of his control is stability in both the natural and spiritual realms. It is why we have a cosmos instead of chaos. The word translated world looks at the creation as a stable, ordered system. Unlike the gods of the nations, Yahweh's judgments are not capricious. He is just. The gods of the nations are arbitrary. The Lord is not arbitrary. The Lord is great. The Lord is good. Then let's move on to the third cycle, verses 11 through 13. We see the exhortation to praise in verses 11 and 12 and the first little part of verse 13. Now, who is to praise? The heaven and the earth. Uh, This is kind of a neat thing to notice. You see this a lot in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, too. It's a figure of speech from Dan to Beersheba. Okay, you read that in the Old Testament. It means Dan and Beersheba. Dan is the northernmost city in um, Israel. Beersheba is the southernmost city and everything in between. Have you ever thought about what Alpha and Omega mean? It means God is the Alpha, God is the Omega, but who's the Beta? Who's the Gamma? Who's the Delta? Well, it's God all the way through. It's God all the way in between. and That's this kind of figure of speech. Heaven, earth, and everything in between. Humanity is too small to begin to praise God as he deserves. The whole created order must join. Romans 8.22 talks about that the whole creation groans and travails in pain together. This is on account of the effects of sin. But the psalm looks forward to a day when the effects of sin will be reversed and creation will be delivered from the bondage of sin. All creation on land and sea must worship Yahweh. Now, it's interesting, how did the heathen make their idols? Well, they made them out of stone sometimes, but a lot of times they made them out of wood. And here, the trees are rejoicing and praising the Lord. Why should we worship and praise, verse 13. The kings of the ancient Near East were both executives and judges. It's dangerous to make one person or one branch of government both executive and judicial. That tends toward the arbitrary. And the kings of the ancient Near East could be like that. The gods of the ancient Near East were like that. But it's safe with Yahweh because he's not arbitrary in his judgment. He's just. All right, we've been through the psalm. What does this mean to us? The psalm is forward-looking, both because of its content 
and because of all the echoes of this psalm that we see in the book of Revelation. God encourages us to look forward to the day when justice reigns on the earth. Jesus taught us to pray this way. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven, everyone obeys God's will perfectly. And so when we pray for God's will to be done on earth, what we're praying for is heaven on earth. But prophecy, which this is, is not just about the future any more than history is about only the past. It has implications for the present. God is the creator, the king, and the judge. Notice also in verse 2, he's the savior. And this contrasts with the idols. Think about people, what people worship as idols today. Idols don't have to be images. Anything more important to you than God is an idol. Anything you trust besides God is an idol. What's, when you get into trouble, what's the first thing you think of? My car broke down. Good, I have enough money in the bank. Or good, I have a credit card. I can take care of this. Is that your first thought? What about your priorities? Um, as a missionary home on furlough, I had the privilege of being supported by a church in which a number of my relatives were members. And I ran into my cousin, and I said, I'm going to be at your church Sunday morning, looking forward to seeing you there. And he said, well, um, um, my kids have a soccer tournament that day. So, unfortunately, I won't be able to be there. Now, he was showing me what his priorities were when he said that. And he was also teaching his children something. And what he was teaching them wasn't good. What are your priorities? What do we do with the sure knowledge of what is to come? What's the psalm begin with? Sing unto the Lord. What are the signs of spirit filling? Ephesians 5.18. Well, we know something that isn't a sign of spirit filling, and that's being drunk. Okay? If you're drunk with wine, you're not spirit filled. But what does Paul say after that? Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That's a product of spirit filling. Is failure to sing as bad as being drunk? Think about that for a while. Joel Montgomery and Dr. Herbert. In fact, the whole Herbert clan made a trip to Hungary where we were as missionaries and they did a brass concert in our church. 
Now, it just so happened that one of the members of our church knew the right people and pulled some strings, and he got the local television station to come and cover the concert. And they had about five minutes that they gave to us and the concert at our church on the local TV station. And it was interesting to see what impressed them about that concert. And they said, isn't this impressive? You have a family here. Everybody in the family is skilled at playing musical instruments, and they all played together. And they played some of the brass music. That that isn't what they played the most of. What they played the most of was the congregational singing. Wow. These people worship by singing, and they all sing. And I hope if someone visits your church, that's something that would impress them. But it, isn't, it is singing together as a group is important. Um, in the Old Testament, pretty much with the temple worship, it was all special music. It was all the choir. And the people in general didn't sing. In the New Testament, in the Old Testament, it was just the priests. In the New Testament, it's just the priests, only we're all priests. So how's your singing? Are you, do you sing from your heart? Do you feel like singing from your heart? If you don't, try noticing God's benefits. Maybe that's one reason we're not happy. We just don't notice the good things that God is doing in our lives every day. And then, even if you don't feel like it, go ahead and try singing. It's a good thing to do. And this leads us to the next point. And uh, here I'm going to be a pretentious intellectual. We theologians are what, what they call polymaths. Does anybody know what a polymath is? It's somebody who thinks he knows everything. Okay? And we borrow from the world of physics a couple of terms. We talk about centrifugal and centripetal. Now, do you know what the difference between those two are? Centrifugal force is the reason when you've got a top-loading washing machine and the basket spins and all the clothes end up on the outside. That's centrifugal. Centripetal is what happens when you pull the stopper out of the drain and the water circles and goes down, it all goes toward the middle. And the question in theology is, is getting out the gospel, is telling the world about God, is that something that should be centrifugal or centripetal? And when the theologian looks at the Old Testament, he says, for Israel, it was centripetal. It was drawing people in. You don't see a lot of examples of that, though. Um, think of Ruth. Think of Naaman. There aren't too many examples of those who were drawn into God because of the example of the nation of Israel. Maybe that's because their example, for the most part, wasn't very good. Jesus tells us to go into all the world. That's centrifugal. 
which of these is the right thing to do? Okay. Well, I think the answer to that is yes. They're both right. Okay. It's, we need to be aggressive because there are a lot of people who would never have a chance to be saved or hear the gospel if we don't go out and, and initiate. That's important. But it's also important that we show them something that's worth seeking after. This psalm tells us about the day when all the wrongs will be put to right, when God will reign in perfect holiness and justice. We look forward to that day, and we can live in confidence that even if things aren't right now, God is going to straighten them out. We don't have to be anxious about the future. A lot of people, most people are anxious about the future. And that can be a, a point of attractiveness for us. And also singing with joy and confidence and praise to God. That can be a point of attraction too. So God help us to rejoice and to sing the new song. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all your many benefits. Help us to be aware of them at all times and rejoicing in you at all times. And I pray that our rejoicing would express itself on our lips with songs of praise. I ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.